If you um, have been following along with our Leviticus activities, uh, I know I saw a lot of people who had um, made up a tabernacle this past week, assembled their own little tabernacle. That's very good. It took the, um, the Israelites a long time to build that tabernacle, but it took you guys just a couple of hours, it seems. If you um, are following those activities, if you've missed any, we've actually got them here. Um, We've got some leftover tabernacle designs if you want to make your own tabernacle. If you, if you want to make the high priest, we had that as an activity a couple of weeks ago. If you haven't made a high priest and you want to make your own high priest, we've also got that. It's just under the pulpit here. I'll just put it up here at the end and you can come up and collect those. So we're on our third last lesson. There's only two more lessons to go on Leviticus after this. So we're kind of getting towards the end of the book and, and getting towards some of these really practical things Um, about applying holiness to your day-to-day life. Let's get into our lesson today. On the board, I'm going to show you what your life is composed of, okay? So the first thing is you've got work to do. Work, uh, maybe school, maybe study. Uh, Even if you're retired, you've still got work to do, right? I've never met a retired person who says they don't have anything to do. You've got family, that's another part of your life. Okay, maybe a, a really big part. You spend your time, spend your time day by day um, around your family, with your family, whether that's your uh, spouse or your kids or your parents, whoever that might be. You've got your friends. So maybe you meet with your friends every weekend. You, you go out uh, with the girls for a coffee or you go out with the guys, you go to the footy. You um, have your hobbies on top of that. So maybe you like your craft, your arts, your sports, whatever it might be. You've got some Hobbies that you have that take up part of your life, that's another segment. You've got your chores, you've got the dishes always need to be done, the vacuuming, that takes up another big part of your life, doesn't it? Um, Your holidays, so you've got weekends, you've got public holidays, you've got the time that you take off work and you choose to spend that time either at home, you know, relaxing or maybe you go somewhere for your holidays or whatever you choose to do. You've got rest, not just talking about sleep, but talking about the time that you take out just to to take it easy and to take a breath and to re-energise so that you can keep working and doing all of these things. You've got exercise, maybe, I'm not sure. Maybe this is stretching now. Uh, how big a, a part exercise is in your life. And then you've got church, right? That's, a, that's a, another aspect of your life. And so these are all of these things, they, you put them all together and that's kind of what your week looks like. You've got a bit of time that you spend at work, a bit of time with your family, a bit of time with your hobbies, a bit of time at church, bit of time resting and exercising, etc., etc. So my question is, which one of these activities is holy? Which of these is the holy activity? And you say, Daniel, that's the easiest game show I've ever played. It's clearly church, right? Obviously church is the holy one. And maybe you've been paying attention in Leviticus that you might think, oh, I don't know about that anymore. Leviticus changes our mind on how we look at our life. Instead of holiness being something that's just confined to one activity, holiness becomes something that is all of your life. Holiness is something that you do at work. It's something that you do when you're with your family. It's something you do when you have your hobbies and when you rest, etc., etc. So what we're studying today is Leviticus 19, which is trying to push this subject Uh, right into your face and to say everything you do in your life needs to be holy even if going to a football game doesn't feel that holy you need to do it in a holy way even if your work doesn't feel like a holy thing you need to do it in a way that is 
holy and that looks um, like holiness. So open up your Bible to Leviticus 19. And by the way, this is why our reading was from from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, because he gives a big list of things to do every day, you know, pray without ceasing and help those who are weak and struggling and, and overwhelmed. And then at the end of that passage, he says, let your whole life be sanctified, that is made holy. Your whole body, your spirit, your soul, everything is going to be holy if you're living as a Christian. So Leviticus chapter 19 is where we're up to. In Leviticus 19, you have pretty much a list of all sorts of different rules for day-to-day living. This isn't written for the priests or to the Levites or to some individual class. This is written to all of the Israelites. And this is saying in your day-to-day life, here are the rules that you need to be living by. So I've broken down the chapter into 19, oh, sorry, into 16 different rules. And we're going to kind of skip through them pretty quickly. I'll just pause and pay attention to a couple of the laws as we go through. You see that these laws, they're telling you how to be holy every single moment of every single day. Whatever activity you're doing, there's a way that you can do it that is holy and right. And there's a way you can do it that's unholy. So verses 1 and 2 really introduces the chapter. Leviticus 19 verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy for I, the Lord God, am holy. Okay, so that's the introduction. You shall be holy. And then the rest of the chapter, he's going to list out all of these different rules that you need to follow. And again, these rules aren't uh, applicable to us today. We're not under the law of Moses, but the principles behind all these rules are important. He's going to say all of these rules are going to show you what a holy life looks like day to day. So let's go through them. Rule number one in verse three, honor your mother and father. Let's read verse three together. It says, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. So when it comes to your family, how do you be holy? You honor your mother and your father. Um, Also in that verse, it says to keep the Sabbaths. So to keep the holy days of God, in particular, the Sabbaths here. Rule number three in uh, verse four, don't make idols. So let's read verse four together. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. So this is a, a religious kind of rule, but it's in the middle of all the other practical rules, isn't it? Just like you should not um, disrespect your parents, you should also not worship and follow idols. He goes on, rule number four in verses five through eight. Um, this is on doing sacrifices correctly. Let's read that, verses 5 to 8. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, and on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it, if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. So this is just a law. If you're giving a peace offering to God, make sure that you eat it on the first and second day. Don't be eating it on the third day and afterwards. We don't really know why this is the case. Maybe it was just God saying, if you're going to do these things, do them my way and don't do them your way. Or maybe it was do them this way because the other nations eat them on the third day and you need to be different from the other nations. Could be anything like that. But again, just a really practical, this is how you be holy in this regard. 
Rule number five, leave some food for the poor. Verses 9 and 10. It says this, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Okay, so I don't know how much grain you've grown in your life, but when you grow grain and a field of grain, it looks like this. It's all green and then it turns to this white colour. Um, that's why Jesus talks about, you know, the fields are white for the harvest or ripe for the harvest um, in John 4.33. Today, when we reap our fields of grain, we have these big machines that do it. So you have people that drive this big harvester and it goes through, harvests all the grain. You don't have to go out there and do any manual work yourself. Back then, and still in some parts of the world today, you'd have to harvest the grain by hand. So when you harvest the grain, it's a very labour-intensive job. You'd go around and you'd cut down the grain stalks and then you'd bring them back to your house um, where you could get the kernels off and then process the kernels, turn them into flour, use that flour to make bread. That's how they made a lot of their food. So when you were um, going about and harvesting your grain, the rule is when you harvest your field... Don't harvest every piece of grain, but leave the corners. Leave some around the edges. Don't be trying to get every single bit of kernel for yourself, but leave a bit there for the poor person. Leave a bit there for the stranger or the person who's travelling through so that they have something to eat. You can see the principle here is very clear. Don't be trying to get everything for yourself. Look for opportunities in your life where you can give to other people. So, the problem was that the Jews, when they started reading these things, they wanted to know, well, what's the exact rule? You know, how much do I have to leave behind? How, much, how many of these stalks do I have to leave up for the poor? Because I want to do what the law says, but I don't want to leave too much behind because you know, I want to make a good profit myself. So what you have is after... Um, after Leviticus is written, hundreds of years after, the common day Israelite would go up to the rabbis, the teachers, and say, well, Leviticus 19 says that I have to leave the corners of my field. But how much do I have to actually leave? Like, is it a percentage or is it a number of kernels that I have to leave for the poor? Because I want to do what the law says, but I don't want to do too much. I don't want to leave too much. I just want to do what the minimum amount is required. And so the rabbis used to give answers to this and they would write their answers down and those answers were collected in a book that we call the Mishnah, part of the Talmud, the Jewish writings, which were a commentary on the law. In the Mishnah, it goes through and it deals with all of these laws and, and it gives what the, the commentators of the day, the rabbis, would say, well, this is what it really means and this is the law that you have to follow. So in the Mishnah, there's a book that's titled Payah and it's to do with this idea of how much grain do you leave behind on your field. The book of Payah has eight chapters to it. I tried reading through it this last week. You think my lessons are dry? I mean, reading a commentary on Leviticus is really dry. The interesting thing is, 
when they wrote the Mishnah, that was even so confusing that they then had to write a commentary on how to interpret the Mishnah, which they called the Gemara. So Jews today, they read the Gemara, which is a commentary on a commentary on Leviticus. So that is really tough reading to try and get through. And they got all of this writing because they wanted to follow the law, but they missed the whole principle behind it. They were trying to follow exactly the minimum amount without getting the heart of the law. So when you're harvesting grain, you chop off a, a fair bit. You get all of these, this, this, these grain stalks into a bundle and you tie them up. And that's a sheaf or plural is sheaves. All right. Now look over with me at Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24. And this is just an extra law that is, is not given in Leviticus, but it's a, an, an additional one regarding this same thing in verses 19 to 21. Deuteronomy 24, 19 to 21 says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, um, the fatherless, and the widow. When you shall gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. The rule is pretty simple, right? If, you, if you're harvesting your field and you leave one of these sheaves behind, just leave it there for the poor. Just leave it there for the people who need it. Don't go back and collect every single bit for yourself. You'd think that would be a pretty straightforward rule, wouldn't you? But of course, the Israelites went and asked their rabbis, well, but what if we leave a number of sheaves behind? You know, what if we leave four or five sheaves? That's a big part of our harvest and that means I'm losing profit. And so... They started coming up with rules on how many sheaves you could forget, but if you forgot a certain number, then you could actually go back and override this rule here. Um, the rabbis said in uh, Paya chapter 6 and verse 6 from the Mishnah, um, if you forget one or two sheaves, then you can't go back and get it. That's just something that you forgot. But if you forget three or more, you're allowed to go back and get it because God doesn't want you to be losing that profit, does he? And then they went back to the rabbis again and said, well, okay, one or two sheaves we have to leave behind, but what if they're really big sheaves, right? What if we have this, this big bunch that's probably the size of two or three sheaves anyway? And so they have the rabbis come out again and they said, well, it depends on how big the sheaf is. You can read all of this. Um, I've got an app on my phone where you can read through the Mishnah. It's really um, strange, strange reading, answering all of these individual questions. So here's the rule on how big the sheaf has to be. It has to be two seers big. Now, a seer was a unit of measurement back then. It was equivalent to 144 medium-sized eggs. Okay, so a dozen, dozen eggs. That's a seer. Now, if a sheaf is two seers big then you can claim it back even if you forgot it because that's too big and God would want you to have it. But if it's less than two seers big, then you have to leave it there in the field. So you can imagine you're a farmer, you've just had a busy day harvesting the wheat. You come back home and you go, oh, I've got a sheaf still in the field. And so you go, you know, honey, where's the eggs? Uh, and you grab an egg and you go out to the field and you've got your sheaf there and you've got your egg 
in this hand and you think, okay, so two seers is 144 times two eggs. So 288 medium-sized eggs is my sheaf, you know, at least that size or bigger. And if so, I can bring it home. And if not, then I have to leave it in the field there. All right. Do you think they missed the point on this passage? Do you think they kind of forgot what this was all about? Do you think God intended them to go out with their eggs and to measure their sheaves and to make sure they got every single, single bit of grain that they were entitled to? I was telling Hannah about this this week. And I was saying, how can you, you know, how can you be so blind? How could they get so caught up in these small things? And I was, you know, saying to her, we don't do that, do we? <laughs> we don't do that. And she pointed out, there's, there's lots of ways that we do the same thing, isn't there? There's lots of ways where we major in the minors, where we get so caught up in the exact rules that we forget the motive behind it. You know, think about how you use language. Sometimes we can obsess about what words we're about to use, um, what words are appropriate and what words are inappropriate, what phrases are appropriate and inappropriate. I'm not saying that's something that um, you shouldn't think about. I think that's a good thing to think about. But sometimes do we obsess over the exact words we can say rather than the whole principle behind using your tongue in the right way? Colossians chapter 4 talks about our, our speech needs to be seasoned with salt. I can go through my whole life without saying this word, that word, this word, that word. I can avoid all of those in-between words that I'm not sure about and yet never use my tongue to season my speech with salt. Likewise, Ephesians chapter 4 talks about our speech needs to be used for building up. And I can avoid all of the swear words, and that's good. It's good to avoid that bad language. Absolutely. But I can focus on all these little rules that I make for myself in my life rather than focusing on what the principle is behind it. Absolutely care about the words that you say. Absolutely have a question about whether that word's appropriate or, or not. But don't forget the principle behind it all. Don't forget the reason why God gave us these principles in the first place. I just wanted to focus on that because that kind of shows how you can take these simple laws and you can distort them and completely miss the easy principle behind them. Let's keep going. Um, law number six is about don't steal, don't lie, don't deal falsely with your neighbour in verses 11 and 12. Rule number seven, don't oppress people who have less power or ability than you in verse 13 and 14. Is there oppression of people who are uh, powerless or disabled in today's world? Absolutely. Rule number eight, don't be unfair in verses 15 and 16. When you're in a court of law, don't show favouritism. Don't be unfair to one side or the other. Rule number nine, don't hate someone. Don't bear a grudge. Don't take vengeance. Let's read this in verse 17 and 18. Verse 17 and 18 of Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbour, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Um, sometimes this quote is um, wrongly attributed to Jesus. Some people think that Jesus was the first person to say, love your neighbour as yourself. Well, technically he was. I mean, he wrote Leviticus, but um, it was back there all along. 
Um, these things were written right from the beginning. It wasn't that Jesus needed to tell people to love their neighbours as themselves. They should have already known that from the law. He just needed to repeat that and show them with his example. Um, rule number 10. Don't be like the surrounding nations in verse 19. Um, there are a number of principles that, that other nations did that God just wanted them to be different. Uh, rule number 11, don't commit any sexual sins in verse 20 to 22. Rule number 12, let the fruit trees grow for future generations, verses 23 to 25. When they had new fruit trees, you couldn't pick the fruit in the first three years. In the fourth year, you took the fruit and offered it as a sacrifice for God. It was only in the fifth year that you actually got to eat the fruit. And that was looking after the trees so that future generations could have that food. It's just about thinking about other people. It's just about being um, careful and mindful of others who are around you. You wouldn't think that picking fruit is holiness, right? And not picking fruit is holiness. But that's exactly what holiness looks like. Holiness doesn't wear a robe and speak the Lord's Prayer in Latin. Holiness is about looking after people in really practical, simple ways. Rule number 13, don't be like other nations. There's some rules about tattoos, there's some rules about hairstyles and some other things in verses 26 to 31 because God wanted them to be distinct. Rule number 14, honour the elderly in verse 32. Just read that with me. Verse 32 says, You shall stand up before the grey head and honour the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. Holiness looks like caring for the elderly people. Holiness looks like respecting your elders and taking care of those with more experience than you. Rule number 15, Holiness looks like um, looking after strangers in verse 33 and 34. And finally, rule 16, holiness is about not cheating people in business, not trying to um, cheat your way through to get more money, not trying to cheat your way so that you get the best side of the bargain. All right, so there's your 16 rules. So here's the sermon. Go and do it, right? Easy. Just go and live that life. Just go and live a holy life, taking care of people, helping the needy, um, looking after the poor. Simple. Except it's not simple, is it? It's not easy at all. Because the Israelites had this chapter, and yet they failed to do it. We know James says this very clearly. There's one thing called hearing the word, and there's another thing called doing the word, and they're completely separate things. And so often we hear the word and don't translate that into doing the word. If you think that this won't happen to you as you try and go out and love your neighbour this week and do kind things and, and spread holiness in day-to-day ways in your life, you only need to look at the Good Samaritan. Remember how in Luke chapter 10 a lawyer came to Jesus. Now a lawyer isn't In those days, it wasn't someone who lived in in a law court. It wasn't someone who spent all day, um, you know, trialling cases. A lawyer is someone who knows the law of Moses. So this person came up to Jesus and they knew the law of Moses. They were, that was their skill, that was their talent. They knew the book of Leviticus back to front. They would have known all of these laws. Oftentimes, to become a Pharisee, you would have to actually recite these things off the top of your head. So you'd have to recite whole chapters, sometimes whole books. This lawyer knew the law really well. He came up to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is a great question. 
And Jesus said, come on, mate, you're the lawyer. You tell me, don't you? Haven't you read the law? Don't you know what it says? He says, what's your reading of it? And the lawyer says, I boil it down to two points. Love God and love your neighbour as yourself. He actually quotes there from Leviticus 19. Love your neighbour as yourself. And Jesus says, spot on, do that. And the lawyer looks at him and says, but who's my neighbour? And Luke adds in a little comment there and he says he wanted to justify himself. And Jesus, instead of giving him a direct answer, he told him a story. Stories familiar to you. Let's look at this is a, a video of the road to Jericho. Um, to give you a bit of an idea, this is what it looks like when you come out of Jerusalem and head down to Jericho. Jesus says it was on this road, someone walked once. You can see very steep road, very narrow very deserted there was no greenery it wasn't a lush place it was not the kind of place you want to get robbed and left on the side of the road on the road to jericho this man walked down he got beaten up by robbers jesus says they left him half dead and he was on the side of this road and then thankfully praise the lord a levite comes a levite that's who the book of Leviticus was written to. The, the whole book of Leviticus was named after the Levites. Of all people, you wanted a Levite to come because they knew Leviticus 19. They could probably recite it to you in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and whatever you wanted. The Levites knew to love your neighbour as yourself. What a blessing. That man must have seen the Levite coming and gone, I'm saved. He knows Leviticus 19. And I know I'm in safe hands. And the Levite comes, fully knowing all of those things that we talked about this morning. And he walks by on the other side. And then, just to emphasise the point, Jesus says the next person who came by was a priest. Not just someone born of the tribe of Levi, but someone who actually served in the temple. Someone who not only taught the law, but was meant to show the law as an example in his life. Priest walks by on the other side of the road. And then Jesus tells him there's this Samaritan. Samaritans don't know much about the law. They had a, a kind of concept of God. They used to worship God, but they didn't really um, follow the Jewish way of doing it. And so they worshipped in wrong ways. Jesus talks about that in John chapter 4. The Samaritan didn't really know the law in and out. He didn't know it word for word. But he knew enough that he stopped and he helped. Then Jesus gets to the end of this parable and he doesn't say who was the neighbour. He says who proved to be the neighbour. You know, when you're asking who's, the who's my neighbour, you're pointing the finger at other people, aren't you? You're saying, are they my neighbour? Are they my neighbour? You're focusing on other people. But he said, who, who proved to be the neighbour? Pointing the finger inwardly and saying, what about you? Are you going to be a neighbour for the people around you? And the lawyer, who should have known this from the start, who shouldn't have had to ask, who is my neighbour, he rightly admitted the one who showed mercy on him. 
So there was a study that was done at Princeton Theological Seminary in the 1970s. Two psychologists headed it up. It's a pretty um, famous one. You might have heard of it before, but um, if you haven't heard of it, it's, it's one of the most fascinating psychological studies um, that I think I've ever come across. They got a big group of people. They pulled them together. These were people studying at a theological seminary. These were the Levites and the priests, you know, the people who you want to stop and help you if you're in trouble. They asked them, can you prepare a lesson on the Good Samaritan and present it, you know, this afternoon? So all of these people, they, you know, are individually going and preparing their lessons on the Good Samaritan. They're reading through the Good Samaritan. They're learning about how you need to take care of people lying on the side of the road who are hurt. And then they split the groups up into three. There's three kinds of people. The first group, they tell them, all right, you need to give your presentation. It's just down the university there. It's in that other building over there. And you have plenty of time. Don't worry. And so they you know, head off one by one. They do this individually. And as they go to that classroom, they have to go through this narrow alleyway. It's quite a, a small one. And in that alleyway, there's an actor. You know, he's playing a part here. He's pretending like he's been hurt and robbed and like he needs help. He's got his wallet spilt all over the place and he's got his books everywhere and he's, you know, in trouble lying on the ground. You know, you should, you'd think they'd put two and two together. They'd think they just did a study on the Good Samaritan. You would think that they would go, oh, look, I can be a Good Samaritan here. What's interesting is they told the first group, you've got plenty of time, don't worry. Um, the, the lecture you're meant to give, the presentation you're meant to give on the Good Samaritan, that's a long way in the future, just head off now and you've got heaps of time to spare. They told group two, you're right on time, but yet you have to go right now. If you, if you go right now, you'll get there right on time and it'll be fine. And they told group three, you're going to be late. You're running way behind, you need to speed up. And then they measured who stopped and helped the guy in the alleyway. And of the first group, the group that had plenty of time to spare, 63% of them stopped and helped. All right? So two in three people basically stopped and, and gave a hand to the person in need. The people who were right on time, 45% of them stopped. The people who they were told, you're running late, you need to hurry to get there, 10% stopped and did what they knew was right. The difference between group three and group one is not knowledge, and it's not how, um, how well they knew the story of the Good Samaritan. It's not that they knew more about how to apply the law. It's not that they intended to do it more than one group. The only difference in this whole experiment was just whether you're busy or not. And I can, you know, I could have finished the lesson earlier today and said, well, go out and be a good Samaritan. Go out and be kind to your neighbour. Go out and love people like it says in Leviticus 19. The biggest problem, though, is not that you don't know that you should do this and it's not that you don't intend to do this. The biggest problem is because you're going to be really busy this week. And there are a lot of opportunities that will come your way and my way and we might just be too busy to stop and meet those opportunities that we find. So here's the point. 
The point is, don't let busyness override holiness. That's a battle that's going to go on this week in your life. Am I going to follow busyness and let busyness rule my life? Or am I going to choose to live in a holy way, taking care of people around me, not just seeing opportunities but acting on those opportunities? I tell you what, it's really hard. (laughs) I mean, I knew this lesson was coming this week. We live busy lives. And no matter how much you say, well, I won't let busyness get in the way, it really does. I have all sorts of ideas on, oh, I should really call that person, I should really send that person a card, that person really needs some encouragement right now. And it's very clear to me that the number one obstacle in my life is busyness, is that I let busyness stop those things on a regular basis. So, I'll leave you with that question and with the activity that we have this week. Your activity is not a hard one. Your activity for this week, if you've read ahead in the book, is give some food to someone. Either make some food or buy some from a bakery and give some food to someone, just like the Israelites gave grain to those who were in need. I want you to drop off some biscuits to someone's place or drop off a muffin or something like that. And don't let busyness get in the way of that. Don't let your schedule stop you from doing what you know is right. Because one thing will win out, and it might be your business or it might be your holiness, and God pleads with you, make sure it's your holiness. Thanks, everyone.